You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute. And yes, we're, we're live. We are all homeschoolers now. Um, I Actually, us, you know, being adults, I think I would classify myself as an unschooler now um, since I'm not, you know, going through any strict structure of, of, of work at the moment. So I prefer to identify as an unschooler. <laughs> you identify as an unschooler? Yeah. I like it. <laughs> Something I hadn't really looked into much until... I saw Carrie McDonald's book. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about all these things with unschooling and the difference between unschooling and homeschooling today with Carrie McDonald. Um, you know, the, we're going to wait a couple of minutes as as we're waiting for additional people to get on, and then we'll, as usual, have Matthew do formal introductions. But I just want to say I'm super pumped to have Carrie McDonald on the show today. I think. You know, this is a, it, we've been waiting for this for a long time. Carrie and I have been talking a lot about, you know, doing some sort of podcast together. And now EFI, Educational Freedom Institute, has actually started, you know, getting something up and running. Matthew's done a lot of work at setting this up. So I want to thank Matthew for, for setting this up. And I want to thank Carrie. Uh, and I think we're in for a, an awesome conversation today um, with the foremost expert on homeschooling or unschooling uh, in the United States uh, uh, today, Carrie McDonald. So I'm super, super excited. Um, yeah, still wait, still waiting for people to to get on. Um, I will say I'm streaming this on my Facebook account, the my YouTube account, the Educational Freedom Institute's Facebook account, the Educational Freedom Institute's YouTube account. And um, a lot of people may be viewing this from my Twitter account at the moment as well. Um, but I just want to tell everybody in the audience right now that we, we can see all of your comments on any of those platforms, or we should be as long as there's, there aren't any glitches. And I will be able to, uh, to, to feature some of those comments, and we can respond to some of those comments as they come in, and I can bring them up on the screen, which is really cool. Um, so if you want to be featured in our show today, make sure you use comments on any of those platforms that 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 are streaming this this interview at the moment. And I also want to say that Carrie McDonald has an excellent book out called Unschooled that came out pretty recently. And if you look towards to the back of the book, you can see that <laughs> a guy named Corey DeAngelis wrote a pretty uh, positive review of the book. And this, you know, this is an excellent book. And if you, if you do comment on any of those platforms that I just listed, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, uh, we are going to do a random drawing today for someone to get a free copy. Uh, so there, nothing is actually free, right? Someone's going to pay for it. And I have to mention that as an economist, but to you, it'll be free. And we will send, we will send a hard copy of the book to you. Um, but just make sure you're commenting and staying engaged with the video today. And that's a little plus to our video today um, uh, with, with, with a, a great author, Carrie McDonald, with us. And I think we have a good amount of people on the live feed as well. And just, just as, as an example for the comments, we already have one. Greg says, good morning, Matthew. I wish you would tell me good morning, too. Maybe he's, he's viewing from the EFI uh, 
uh, YouTube, but uh, no, no, this is actually on my Twitter. Tell me good morning too, Matthew <laughs> and, and Gary. Good morning. Uh, yeah, this, this is how this works. Um, it'll show up like this uh, if I choose to feature your comment. If you say anything nasty, I'm not going to bring your comment up. But without further ado, I think, uh, Matthew, I think we should get this thing rolling. Okay, good. Well, uh, welcome, everyone. We appreciate everyone tuning in for a little bit of good conversation, what I'm sure will be a great conversation with Carrie McDonald. Um, I'm Matthew Nielsen. I'm the board chair at the Educational Freedom Institute. Corey DeAngelis is here with us again, as always, the executive director of EFI. He's also the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. But our special guest today is Carrie McDonald, and she's the author, as Corey just showed, of a book called Unschooled. We're going to be giving a free copy away of that today. Uh, later on, random drawing. So comment if you want to be entered into that drawing. Uh, it's Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated, children outside the conventional classroom. Carrie is also a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. So welcome, Carrie. We appreciate you coming on and taking a little bit of your morning aside, setting a little bit of it aside to talk with us. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be with you both. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we wanted to start with um, uh, the just a broad overview. If you could give us, you you have a good handle, Carrie, on the history of education in America, but really in particular, even the history of laws around education, compulsory education. Can you tell us, uh, you know, the back of the napkin overview of of what that is, what that looks like in the United States? You know, it's interesting history of compulsory schooling and, and education throughout the colonial eras in America. And I feel like now moving back for the 21st century, some of my book, I trace that back arrive would become Massachusetts Bay the colony's first compulsory education laws in the 1640s but those laws state interest in an educated citizenry and compelled cities and towns certain either hire a, a teacher or a grammar school so it was the cities and towns that were compelled by the state to provide educational resources for families that wanted them, not compelled to send their children to these schools or receive instruction from these teachers. In fact, homeschooling was of course the default. The expectation was that parents were the ones ultimately responsible for their children's decisions, um, but they were not always the ones teaching them. So there were these dame schools, which were like little nursery schools in your neighbor's kitchen. Uh, there were tutors that would come into homes and, and provide guidance and instruction. There were a wide was a wide assortment of public and private schools, charity schools, church schools. 
Uh, and of course, apprenticeship programs were widespread, the on-the-job learning and training um, of young people, adolescents, in, in whatever skills and trades they would go into. So there was really this sort of a robust um, arena of education options in the colonial and revolutionary eras. This all changes, uh, as you both well know, in the mid-19th century, when Massachusetts, again, leading the way in compulsion, passes <laughs> the United States' first compulsory schooling statute, compulsory attendance law, in 1852 that for the first time ever compels parents to send their children to common schools under a legal threat of and the idea of the common schools it was a bipartisan effort uh, you had a lot of education reformers at the time enamored with the prussian model of compulsory education standardized curriculum standardized teacher training this obedient uh conforming student body, age-segregated classrooms, and so on. Um, and that really was enchanting to a lot of the education reformers in the United States in the early to mid-19th century, who believed that this would be a moment to bring everybody together to create these common unify um, the country. But of course, what was happening to trigger a lot of that the feeling of wanting to unify the country was there was um, a tremendous amount of immigration happening, particularly in Boston and other major cities uh, in the early to mid 19th century, mainly uh, Irish Catholic immigrants and other immigrants that threatened the dominant Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture of the time. And so there was a lot of that sort of anti-immigrant sentiment around the common school movement as well. And this sense that we needed to create these common schools to Americanize everybody but these common schools, although allegedly secular, um, were teaching the King James Version of the Bible, had Protestant teachers and other Protestant texts, and were anything but secular. And in fact, many Irish Catholics ended up creating their own parallel system of Catholic schools uh, in rejection of these common schools. And Horace Mann himself, one of the architects of this first compulsory schooling statute, homeschooled his own children um, with no intention of sending them to these common schools mandated for others. So that was a real, I think, peak of force and force carries over the next century. But I think uh, now with the, a lot of parent demand for more choice beyond a mandatory school assignment, we're seeing that pendulum swing back toward choice, variety, and freedom. So yeah. you, that's interesting that you mentioned that Horace Mann, you know, created this system for everybody else's kids to send yeah. them to public schools or government-run schools or common schools, whatever you want to call them, to be more, you know, Americanized um, and and less Catholic, and then he sent his own kids, or he homeschooled his own kids. So we should probably feature him at the Educational Freedom Institute School Choice Hypocrisy Map. We could put yeah. him um, in Massachusetts over there with Elizabeth Warren. Choice for me, but not for thee. Um, so that's it interesting. Is, it, is, it is worth pointing out. You know, I'm no fan of Horace Mann, of course, but it it is fair to say that initially, when he was involved with others in designing um, the and laying the groundwork for these compulsory schooling statutes, he initially wasn't compulsion. He really felt like we could create the 
and everyone will flock to them because they'll just be so wonderful. But he was convinced and persuaded ultimately that really in order to get particularly these non-compliant immigrants into these schools, we had to uh, create that compulsion piece. And it seems like that's completely anti-American, right? American, you know, Americans supposed to be this melting pot of different cultures and, you know, to really allow and accept uh, other people's viewpoints and to allow for a more pluralistic society, we need to be able to allow people to choose their schools as well. But it looks like the whole idea behind the common schools was inherently, uh, I would say, anti-American because it, the whole idea is to not allow people to embrace their own cultures, which I think today a lot of people understand that people that we should be accepting of other people's cultures, of immigrants' cultures. Um, so this is um, very concerning to me, to say the least. And I think in 1922, Oregon pushed to outlaw private schooling, or they actually did outlaw private schooling in 1922. And similar groups, you know, the KKK was behind this, um, made similar arguments that, you know, if in order to have everybody be good Oregon citizens, they need to be forced to go to the government-run schools. We can't have them going off to the private schools where they can, you know, uh, uh, I think it was, an, it was again, about Catholicism and, and people going to the Catholic private schools and, uh, you know, individuals in Oregon not letting, not wanting other groups to be able to do so. So that's, extremely concerning to me um but we should we should shift a little bit you know from that history um but i but thank you you know for setting the groundwork and and giving some of our listeners some of that history but i think we should shift to you know unschooling and homeschooling i just want to ask you a question i know matthew's supposed to be running this the the q a but i'm gonna i'm gonna sneak in really quickly because i think a lot of people are have this on their mind right now um Carrie, what's what's the main difference between unschooling and homeschooling? Um, because there are a lot of similarities, but when I bring up unschooling to people, they'll be like, "Well, is what what what, what what's the difference between that and and, and homeschooling?" I haven't really heard of unschooling. Right. Um, well, a couple of things. First, I would just say I know the the topic, of course, is that we are all homeschoolers now. There are over one billion, with a B, students around the world not in school, and they are at home. Um, so in that way, we are all homeschoolers now. But as I've been trying to point out, what we're experiencing now uh, is nothing like authentic homeschooling. We're all isolated in our homes, disconnected from our larger communities. And most homeschoolers and unschoolers would tell you that we spend most of our time outside of our homes in typical homeschooling and not certainly confined uh, uh, in our homes. But that said, I think there there is a lot to learn through this experience. Um, and I think we'll get to some of that as well further on in our conversation. But in terms of homeschooling and unschooling, the term unschooling was coined by uh, education reformer and author John Holt in 1977, who was really one of the pioneers of the modern homeschooling movement. And he coined the term unschooling uh, in his second issue of the first newsletter for homeschooling families called Growing Without Schooling. And he defined it as taking children out of school. Um, because of course, tied to these compulsory schooling statutes in most states, uh, homeschooling was either explicitly illegal or was not well defined. So authorities, school officials, parents had no real sense of what uh, the legality of homeschooling was. And, and John Holt and other reformers really um, spent the following decades 
expanding homeschoolers' rights, clarifying the right of all uh, parents in the U.S. to homeschool their children. Um, so then the term unschooling, I think, evolved over the following decades to really um, be differentiated from kind of conventional homeschooling in being more focused on self-directed education. So if we think about traditional homeschooling, often the only thing that's really changed is the location of schooling from school to home with young people following a set curriculum and taking tests and following assignments and doing homework uh, and really replicating school at home. And unschooling and self-directed education tried to challenge that model entirely and, and really disentangle education from schooling completely, regardless of where that schooling might take place, to say, you know, Schooling is one way of being educated, but it's certainly not the only way and uh, might not be the preferred way for the realities of this innovation era when we need human creativity and curiosity and not conformity and compliance the way we saw in the 19th century. So, um, so unschoolers, I think, really uh, promote that and sort of want others to recognize the differences between education and schooling uh, and allow young people's interests and passions to drive what becomes incredible learning and discovery. What's the quote by Mark Twain? He never let his... Well, I, I don't. I think that's falsely attributed. To yeah, Mark Twain, it's apocryphal. I, I, yeah. I never let, uh, never let schooling interfere with my education. But who, who is the actual? Who actually said it? Do we know? I know I've quoted it in an article before, and it's some. There's some other person. I could bring it up while you guys are thinking about it, but. Um, it's a good. But no, the point. The point is valid, right? Uh, to your point, Carrie, that that there is a difference between education and schooling. So anyway, that I think it's a, it's a good a good thought, and it's a it's a fair point to bring up in this context because a lot of people are worried, right? A lot of families are thinking, my child is out of school, or my children are out of school, and they're not going to learn anything because I'm a horrible teacher, because I don't follow the schedule, because I whatever, right? I mean, there are all of these failings that we can all blame ourselves for, and. And you bring up a, another great point that what we're experiencing now isn't homeschool because okay. homeschoolers aren't quarantined, right? I mean, that's, that may be some people's perception of it. And I get, and I, I've heard that from people like, oh, you just stay home at all day, all day. And that contributes to lack of socialization, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is just the opposite, right? Well, and if I can comment on that too, Matthew, um, again, going back to the history of compulsory schooling and the modern homeschooling movement's origins, the stereotype of homeschoolers as being stuck in their homes and disconnected from their communities has a, has a grain of truth in the early days of the modern homeschooling movement when many families were forbidden to allow their children to leave the home during school hours if they were homeschooling. Um, so, so yeah, so a lot of families weren't allowed to go to the library or the museum or be out in the parks during school hours if they were homeschooling again in those early days. And so um, some of that stereotype, I think, unfortunately lingers, although certainly 21st century homeschoolers are much more immersed in the people, places and things of our community. Yeah. Well, and homeschoolers get to miss out on a lot of the negative socialization that occurs in government sure. schools, a lot of bullying, fighting, 
you know, you're more likely to end up with a teenage, teenage pregnancy. A lot of things that, you know, uh, are left out of the conversation. You know, people pr- frame this whole conversation about all as if all of this socialization going on in schools is actually a good thing. And you also learn how to be a little brat with all the other people uh, your same age in, in the government-run school. So maybe missing out on some of that socialization is some of is sometimes a good thing. Right. And, and so the number one reason, uh, according to federal data on why uh, families choose homeschooling, is concern about the environment of other schools, including negative peer pressure, bullying, substance abuse, and so on. So, um, you know, it's one and probably one of the major reasons why families exercise school choice more generally is concern about the environment of their assigned district school. Yeah. So we, well, we, we have a question from a viewer. Um, hey, I love this conversation. Can Carrie explain a typical unschooler's instructional day? And I don't know if you want to talk about your your own children's unschooling um, instructional day or 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 just in general. Right. Um, I will talk first about uh, not that there is any real typical day for a homeschooler or an unschooler. I think most people would tell you that. But first, I'll talk about uh, homeschooling and unschooling under ordinary circumstances, not when we're all uh, social distancing and confined to our homes. Uh, and then maybe talk a little bit about what days are looking like for, my, you know, certainly for my four unschooled children now as well. Um, so as, as much as a typical ordinary unschooling day looks like, of course, it varies by season and by children's interests. Um, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, so we have an abundance of resources for homeschoolers and unschoolers. Um, Many museums offer weekly classes for homeschoolers, like the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, for example. Um, Libraries offer programs. Many of, you know, community organizations like art studios and yoga studios um, offer programs. There's math programs for homeschoolers throughout the city. Uh, my three older children take a um, go part time a couple of days a week to a self directed learning center in the city. So uh, my kids are really out again outside of the home far more than they're inside of the home. Really learning from um, just wonderful mentors and teachers and other instructors throughout our community. So it's not uh, my husband and myself educating them uh, explicitly like we would think of, again, with the stereotype of homeschooling. Homeschooling, as I often say, is really um, this legal lever to put parents back in charge of their children's education and provide the freedom and flexibility and experimentation in education that can be difficult, certainly in public schools, but even in private schools that are confined to um, compulsory attendance laws and other kinds of state mandates. So that's what I would say, you know, sort of a typical uh, unschooling experience. Of course, now we're all stuck inside and maybe we can get into this a little bit more. But I've been sharing a lot of resources and in some of my articles links to the incredible online programming that is coming up daily for families. So it's really never been a better time for families curious about learning without schooling. Uh, given the fact that, yes, we are disconnected from others, but to really get a sense of what sort of resources are available to help facilitate a child's interest in education. Um, You know, I can say, for example, my nine-year-old daughter and I have been doing the Mo Willems um, lunchtime doodles. And I don't know if you know Mo Willems, but he is this acclaimed author of the uh, popular children's books, uh, 
Piggy and Gerald and some others. And he's just been doing these art programs every day, uh, live streaming. Now you can get them all on YouTube on showing kids how to draw and sketch and doodle. And the same thing we're seeing with authors, you know, famous authors live streaming their classes or their insights on how to um, become an author and reading their stories. Um, we're seeing, you know, virtual tours of 2,500 museums worldwide, live stream symphony concerts. It's just an extraordinary time to open up our, our, our eyes to other um, experiences and ideas that we may not otherwise have had. That's very so, cool. Yeah, there are a lot of resources out there that I, Corey and I were talking about this last week, actually, that I think that if families knew and that's the struggle right it's getting out in front of people and saying look at what's available to you right now <laughs> just that part of it can be difficult getting people's attention that's the age-old struggle of marketing right <laughs> like that's just that's hard sometimes but if you could get that all of that information in an easily digestible form right in front of all the families that need it i i think you would see uh a lot of families choosing that instead of a traditional setting. I think that, I think you're gonna see yeah. an increase anyway. Right. You know, when August rolls around, when September rolls around, I think you're gonna see an increase anyway because some families will just say, hey, this, this actually worked for me. It wasn't so bad. I think I might try it. But I think that would even go up higher than, than otherwise would if, that was right there for the family, right? And, and well, all that was there and again, in an easy, easily digestible form. Yeah, I mean, I know Corey, you've been pointing out on your Twitter feed, um, different parents that are saying, wow, you yeah. know, my kids have never been happier. This is something mm -hmm. I wanna continue. So I would be very surprised if we don't see more families choosing um, homeschooling, virtual schooling, or other alternatives to school. Many of these parents probably have wanted to try this for quite a while, but just lacked that inertia uh, to give it a try. And now that they have that opportunity, they they may not go back. So I think that's one thing. I uh, and providing resources to families. You know, I'm I'm hearing a lot of families, a lot of parents, typical homeschooling Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. have been going to public schools and in many cases these facebook groups are offering warm welcome parents and i and i think there they'll start to see wow you know i didn't know the local museums offered these classes or i didn't know that my kids can take an architecture class around the corner at the maker studio or uh, i didn't know that there was this mit trained mathematician who offers you know weekly math classes for homeschoolers and they'll say gee why am i sending my my child to a conventional school when there are these low cost uh, options available in my community so Carrie, on that, I know one of the biggest pushbacks that, that I hear just from members of my audience and elsewhere is that, well, how are people going to work if, if our, you know, I have to work, I can't do any homeschooling because I don't want to, I, I don't have time to be able to educate my children, you know, 100% of the time. So what's your typical response to that? I know you kind of alluded to it just now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a few responses. Um, definitely, again, that stereotype of one parent being at home, um, sitting around the kitchen table, educating their children um, through homeschooling. I'm not sure if it was ever fully true, but it's definitely much less true today. Uh, in fact, you have many, 
to working parents or um, single parents choosing homeschooling. Um, you know, one thing to think about is when we think about education without schooling, it's not tied to the hours of eight to three every day. And these kind of school have a much broader kind of seven day day week to look at and to think about educational experiences and opportunities there. So for families, particularly if you have any flexibility in work schedules, um, opportunities to to educate your children, you know, outside of those kind of typical schools. But yeah, for families and parents that have to work d during the day, again, there are these self-directed learning centers, low cost, in-home, private micro schools that are sprouting. Um, definitely near you, Matthew, there's the Prenda micro school network, the fast growing in-home micro school uh, network in Arizona. And many of these, um, you know, operate under a lot of the education choice mechanisms that are expanding and I think will really ramp up after this as more parents demand more early education and savings accounts uh, that separate education from schooling in ways that vouchers don't by allowing parents to use some funding for books, resources, tutors, classes, that sort of thing, as well as tuition if they'd like, um, and tax credit scholarship programs, um, and certain virtual charter schools. So I think we'll see more push for those kinds of education choice mechanisms that make this more accessible to more families. There's also hybrid homeschool programs. I often talk about the Da, the da Vinci Charter School Network in California, where uh, children in the and a brick and mortar school a couple of days a week. Um, but then the rest of the time they're at home with their families or they're out in their community taking classes. Uh, and again, that's free to the user because it's a virtual charter school, um, but provides some of that freedom and flexibility as well. So I think more of that we'll see uh, demand for going forward. So on that, we do have a question from Greg uh, Cinders. Will the education, will the current dis disruption with COVID-19 and everything going on lead to a more a la carte system of education? I think you kind of got into that a little bit, uh, discussing how education savings accounts kind of would lead to this. But how, how does this tie into COVID-19? Yeah, again, I think that we it, will, it would be surprising if we don't see, um, again, more families you know, you mentioned my unschooled book that came out last May, and I'm already seeing an uptick in sales recently for that as more families find themselves unschooling, homeschooling, raising uh, curious children outside of school and want to see, you know, that continue. So I think the more families are exposed to these possibilities, the more they will want to continue with those possibilities post-pandemic. Um, so I think we will see more of this a la carte model. I think we will, uh, you know, really see some big educational reforms, this big educational reset. I talk, I, I've been talking recently about, um, and maybe you can add to this both as well, but to uh, the changes that occurred after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in 2005. And Stanford's Terry Moe, of course, wrote the book, The Politics of Institutional Reform detailing how this devastating hurricane um, really loosened a lot of these embedded political structures and sources of power and control, leading to what is really now an almost all charter school mm -hmm. network in New Orleans, um, mm -hmm. suggesting that that really couldn't have occurred if we didn't have this kind of massive natural disaster and, and which led to this major education reset. And I think mm -hmm. as terrible as COVID-19 is and how I think we'll 
lead to similar education changes, particularly now back in charge of their children, learning alongside of them, getting to know them better, connecting more as a family, realizing that's not particularly with these technical resources, it's not that hard to facilitate learning in other ways beyond schooling. So, so do you, go, go ahead, ahead, Matthew. Go ahead, Matthew. I was, I was gonna ask you, Carrie, this, this actually might be an interesting spot to pivot. So you tell me, Cor, if you don't wanna pivot yet, because um, to talk about regulation and the loosening of regulation, yeah. but. Corey, did you want to jump in before we move to that? Yeah, it was a real quick question. Just Carrie's prediction. We say we asked Lindsay Burke the same kind of prediction, but mm -hmm. you know, with as a result of COVID nineteen, you know, before the tragedy, we had you know about three percent of the school age population identified as homeschoolers. If you include like virtual schooling as well, I think that was like four percent. Uh, what what do you think that percentage will be? you know, in, in two years from now, uh, perhaps as a result of COVID-19? And then also, do you think this could lead to a push for education savings accounts um, so that families could afford to, 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 to be able to, to exercise this option? Right. Yeah. Well, the, the first question I would say, you know, if we have roughly 50 million American children not in school right now, uh, if even one or two percent of those gets added to the existing roughly two million homeschoolers, I think that would be reasonable and 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 certainly um, not unexpected. So I would say that we'll definitely see some kind of percentage increase. Um, and I think absolutely parents are going to now get a glimpse of different ways of educating their children. They also, I think interestingly, are in many cases, getting a glimpse of what their kids are actually doing in schools. Um, to the extent that schools are sending home curriculum or having children log in online and connecting with their teachers, I think parents are seeing what is actually happening in the classroom to in ways that they haven't really uh, been able to before. So for example, a neighbor of mine recently said that her child uh, logged in for one of the school day assignments and the teacher was reading a book to the class. And this was a book that this particular child read to herself four years ago. Uh, so I think, you know, sometimes parents are saying, oh, you know, what is really happening? And then the same family, incidentally, is also um, seeing how their child is just blossoming now with all of this unstructured time, reading, you know, devouring books, writing short stories, really being much more creative and curious and calmer and happier. Uh, so they're seriously considering continuing uh, with this homeschooling or some other alternative to school after this. And I think more families will do that as well. So yeah, so I think that there'll be more of that. And then absolutely, I think there'll be a push for more education choice mechanisms. And of course, ESAs, education savings accounts are really, as you've said, the kind of gold standard for, um, for particularly for really disconnecting education from schooling and broadening that definition, providing more funds to families for things other than just tuition at another private school. Yep, I, I think so too. I, it's hard to put a number on that, right? But, um, and it's really impossible to do that right now. But I do think the increase will happen. It's just a matter of how much. And that's part of why I'm interested in getting more just um, easy to handle, done for you kind of 
schedules or sample schedules or whatever that you could, you know, like you said, and it doesn't all have to be sitting at the kitchen table doing all of your work all, you know, for seven hours a day, obviously that's not it. But that's why I think you could see that even increase more if they did have the information where they said, look, I, I it wasn't bad during the lockdown. <laughs> like it wasn't horrible. We got into a rhythm, but I just, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent comfortable. I'm not quite there yet. I think we could get people over the fence to where they say, you know what, I can do it. And I'm, I'm going to do it because I have a plan. And uh, so anyway, that that's why I'm interested yeah. in getting that out there. And I think, so. I think again, parents are getting a glimpse of this now in ways that they may not have had a chance to do before. I mean, you look at something like Khan Academy, which is really the leader in free online learning resources, video-based uh, lessons for children and for adults, but mostly geared towards kids and all kinds of subject areas, but particularly known for its math instruction. Um, they've added a lot of additional supports for families and, and parents have, you know, sort of a set schedule if they'd like for the day of what their kids could be doing. There's diagnostic tests again, all for free to see where your kids are at and then uh, tailor learning accordingly. So we'll see those kinds of things. Um, tutoring companies, online tutoring companies like Varsity Tutors, where typically you would have to pay for one-on-one -on -one virtual tutoring for your child now are offering free online tutoring um, for families. So that's another thing that I think parents will start to see that there are these resources, textbook publishers coming out offering their resources for free during the pandemic. And I think all of those things um, will show parents that they can they can facilitate education without schooling. Um, we show them all of these incredible resources tapping into some of these homeschooling networks already make them see that it's really a thing. Yep. I think so too. I think it'll happen. Well, um, yeah, see that that's exactly, I, I said this a couple weeks ago on one of our uh, prior broadcasts with Corey, that my son is in uh, first grade and he has a great teacher, right? She's actually fabulous. We love her. But within five days of him being home, he was reading books he hadn't read more clearly. Uh, he was enunciating his words properly. And he wasn't, you know, like he didn't jump ahead three grade levels or anything in five days. But, but the point is that, yeah, kids, <laughs> kids can learn more at home during, uh, you know, during this time than than they do at school and and that's just a function of the system that we're in right i mean it's hard to expect much out of one individual or maybe two if you're lucky in a classroom of 25 to 30 kids so uh you know that's just that's just the the way that it's set up so anyway there are there are a lot of benefits there do we still have you carrie looks like she's kind of frozen let me uh She'll probably hop back in in a second, but yeah, let's keep her article up while we're while we're waiting on her. Um, you know, uh, yeah. So this is an article by Carrie McDonald, um, and I think she makes the claim that kids are actually learning more at home during COVID nineteen. And I I shared a tweet earlier of how a parent actually was saying, "Hey, look, I think I'm never going to send my kid back to the public school after this because." 
they're learning a lot at home and I think we can do this. And even though it might be really hard, we're really going to push, push forward and, and, and really try to allow uh, our individual, our, our, our students or our children to be able to um, homeschool going forward. It looks like Carrie might be back in. Hey, are you there? Carrie, can you hear me? Sweet. We got you back. I thought we lost you. <laughs> we did lose you. But... Matthew and Corey, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Can you hear yes. us? I can. I'm sorry. A transformer just blew up in our neighborhood. And we lost all electricity oh. and internet. So, oh I'm wow, my, I'm on my phone with you now. So, well, it looks like you figured out the technical difficulty pretty quickly. We were just kind of talking about your article uh, a little bit. So, um, yeah, thanks for hopping back in. Can you hear uh, me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. So, do do you want to go over, you know, maybe some of the things you talked about? In this article, any anything else? We just kind of talked about it for a little bit. I'm having trouble hearing you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. can I can hear you. you. Okay. Can Can you hear me now? Is it hard to hear Corey or everyone? I, I don't think I'm hearing Corey. Maybe that's what. Maybe I'm hearing just you, Matthew. Okay. <laughs> Dang it, <laughs> Matthew. You can hear me, right? Yep, I can hear you. I'll ask the question. So, Carrie, he was wondering if you wouldn't mind um, telling us a little bit. Thanks. I'm sorry. No, you're good. So, he was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you wrote in this article here, Are Kids Learning More at Home During COVID-19? Right. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of sort of alarmist narrative, I think, coming up right now around um, coronavirus learning loss and equating it with the alleged summer slide phenomenon, which is um, when, you know, during the summer months, young people purportedly lose whatever learning they gained uh, the previous academic year. And I wrote an article for NPR a couple of years ago where I basically said summer slide doesn't exist, that, you know, if learning can be so easily lost with an interruption or a break in, um, in summer, did they ever really learn the material at all? Or were they just trained and tested on, <laughs> thanks, Corey, I'm were quick. they just trained and tested on content? Uh, that they then quickly forget, you know, so this idea that we can memorize and regurgitate information that we're trained on uh, during the academic year, and then it's quickly forgotten. And then, of course, what does that say for us as adults? You know, as soon as we graduate from high school, um, allegedly, we lose everything that we learned, right? Uh, and maybe it wasn't really that important anyway. I mean, if that's the sense that we're getting from some of this. So I think it's important for us to really challenge this narrative of all the learning loss that is supposedly occurring during the coronavirus time. And instead, really see this as a chance to gain learning. Look at all the learning that can happen, again, with access to all of these digital resources that are available at our fingertips right now. And, um, and just all that family togetherness and being able to be at home with children and living and learning alongside children in ways that uh, we may not have been able to before when we were always so busy with our own lives and activities and always on the go. So I think um, instead of sort of this alarmist narrative around this being a real education crisis, I think it can be uh, instead a real uh, opportunity for families and a great experience for learning for parents and children alike. Hey, Carrie, can you hear me now? 
Can you hear? Can you hear Corey? Carrie? I'm still, I'm no, still everybody else can hear me. Okay, I'm so sorry, Matthew, if you I'm can. On my phone because we we don't have any internet or electricity <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> That's so amazing. Matthew, 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 relay my question yeah. for me. This will be okay, interesting. Well, I'm going to be the middleman here, Carrie, because Corey has some questions for you. Ask her if there are any um, non-educational benefits that she sees from people being at home, maybe as you know, as a result of being with your family more, and and you know, maybe not not being in in those school walls. Uh, yeah, maybe mental health benefits or any other type of non-educational. Yeah, great question. So, Carrie, Corey's wondering if there are any non-educational benefits to um, the current situation, or even just homeschool in general or unschooling. Um, you know, around like you mentioned, family relationships or what? What else? What other right. benefits are out there? Right. I mean, you know, one thing, for example, um, ADHD diagnoses are often quite closely linked to school attendance. Um, and for many children right now, they may be, you know, taking their Ritalin or their uh, other ADHD medication when they're in school and are not taking it now when they're at home. And that should be something I think that parents, it causes parents to pause and say, you know, well, maybe my child doesn't actually need this. Um, you know, maybe again, uh, ADHD is a failure to comply with this kind of conforming, obedient, uh, standardized classroom environment and not a problem with my particular child. And outside of schooling, my child can be um, calmer, can be more curious. It's okay if they're enthusiastic. It's okay if they're asking questions. It's okay if they're uh, jumping around and are exuberant. Um, that isn't problematic outside of a conventional classroom. So I think parents may see some of that. Also, uh, Yale University came out with a study that was just published this month. Uh, and I wrote about for fee uh, in the early in its early preview back in February, where um, they found that the vast majority of teenagers, I think it was like 75% of teenagers are unhappy when they're in school. Um, really just overwhelming, uh, yeah, there we go. Vast majority of high schoolers unhappy at school, overwhelming dissatisfaction with their time at school. And this particular study reinforces other similar studies that found the same type of thing. So especially as we look at uh, rising rates of, child, of adolescent anxiety, depression, and suicide, um, again, something else that we should really be thinking of that you know maybe kids being out of school particularly teenagers can improve their mental health and in fact researchers out of uh, vanderbilt university found uh, a real link between school attendance and childhood uh, suicide or adolescent suicide finding that in the summer months um, teenage suicide tendencies and attempts declines and then skyrockets again at back to school time when uh, it's an opposite trend with adults who find suicide spikes in the summertime. Uh, so this will be, again, interesting, particularly for teenagers, if we find that their mental health is improving again by being uh, outside of a conventional classroom with more hmm. autonomy and more choice. Yeah. So mental, so yeah, the mental health issue is a big one. And you, that article, you talked about that a lot with, um, ADHD, right? Another word for that is childhood, right? It's like um, kids are kids. And if you expect little kids to sit in a room facing forward, 
for seven and a half hours a day, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, yes, they get some recess. Yes, they, you know, but, but little kids, I mean, my little kids, I can tell you, weren't made for that. They, they weren't built for that kind of an environment. So you can see how mental health could suffer and, and right. does. Right. Um, and in fact, Harvard, Harvard University researchers about a year and a half ago came out with a study of ADHD, finding that um, for children entering school, so kindergartners entering school in states that had a September 1st enrollment age cutoff, that if you were, if you had an, an oh, there we go, had an, an August birthday, um, and therefore would have been one of the youngest ch children in the class, you were 30% more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than children born in September who were about to turn six. And of course, any parent knows what a difference a year makes, particularly mm -hmm. in early childhood, of you know the ability to sit still, the ability to pay attention and focus uh, is much easier for a six-year-old than it is for a five-year-old. Um, and in particular, in this case, as we find with many other ADHD diagnoses, it was predominantly boys that were being uh, diagnosed because often they are very exuberant and have a lot of energy and are just not meant to be confined into a classroom, particularly as classrooms become more standardized, become more test-driven, and young people are spending more time in school than ever before. Yeah, interesting. Well, let, let's... Uh... Corey, anything else on that before we move on to uh, uh, talking about um, my next question would be around um, regulation. Any other? And and we're probably yeah. I, I wish I could I, that Carrie could still hear me, but I I think she wanted to talk a little bit maybe um, about regulations and and perhaps COVID nineteen could lead to a reduction in regulations in, in industries like healthcare, but then also in, in education. I think she wanted to touch on that a little bit. And then I think that's about all the time we have. That'll probably be our last. Yep, we're coming up on, on an hour here. But um, so yeah, Carrie, uh, again, I don't know if, if that's improved at all, if you can hear Corey yet, but. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> probably okay. for the best. <laughs> <laughs> he says that's probably for the best, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, let's talk about regulation. What what are some examples of temporary regulations that should stick long term? Well, you know, certainly during the the pandemic, we're seeing in healthcare a lot of regulations being loosened. So licensing laws allowing out of state licensed healthcare professionals to enter states where there is the highest need for their services, and having those licensing requirements waived. Um, we're seeing um, a lot of kind of fast approval processes for the FDA in terms of drugs. We're seeing more uh, loosening of regulations for potential innovations and inventions to help fight this, uh, this pandemic. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that we're also seeing some loosening uh, regulations in education as well. And it will be interesting to see if they stick and hopefully we can push for some more of these loosenings, loosening of this reg these regulations, things like uh, in many states, 
saying that any content being sent home right now is considered optional and for enrichment purposes only, which gives families an opportunity in many places to disconnect from uh, school curriculum and directives that they may have. Um, you know, we're seeing compulsory attendance laws be loosened in various states where they're not required to count this time away. It doesn't hold uh, schools against, doesn't, this isn't hold schools against them for uh, compulsory attendance uh, compliance. Um, and testing waivers. So the Federal Department of Education providing waivers for federal testing mandates to states. Uh, so some of those things I think are positive in terms of um, this pandemic. And, and it would be interesting to see, again, could we loosen some of these compulsory attendance laws going forward to provide more of the experimentation and innovation that often is not able to occur because the state is defining, controlling, and assessing all education in particular areas. So the same way that we're seeing more innovation and invention come out in healthcare at this point with loosening regulations, I think we could see the same level of experimentation if compulsory schooling statutes were loosened. Now, on the flip side, I, I do think that homeschoolers in particular, or anyone interested in virtual schooling and alternatives to school and hybrid models um, also needs to be quite vigilant because as a, as parents get a taste of this freedom and flexibility away from schooling, um, you know, this could be threatening to an educational establishment that really um, wants to hold on to its power and doesn't want parents flocking away from conventional schooling into these alternatives. And so I think we do need to be vigilant about making sure that we don't see uh, heightened calls for regulation of homeschoolers or some of these other alternatives. So, so on, on, on on that, before before we let Carrie McDonald go, I want to get her reaction to this call for a ban on homeschooling um, in at this conference that's coming up yeah, at yeah. Harvard Law School in June. So I know she can't hear me. If you could just ask her for her uh, reaction to this conference that looks like it's an anti-homeschooling conference. Right. Invite yeah, so Carrie, um, Corey wants your reaction to this. You've seen this, I'm sure. The uh, Harvard Law School is putting on a conference and it's invite only. And they, <laughs> and you've probably even seen some of the breakout sessions uh, and what the titles of those are. But wh what are your impressions on this? Any thoughts you want to share with us on that? Yeah, I mean, I've been getting a lot of emails and a lot of messages concerned from homeschooling parents that are worried about this. And it's understandably disturbing, um, particularly for those of us who know the value of homeschooling and alternatives to school. I think, you know, it's also not surprising. This is a group that's been very vocal in their opposition to homeschooling. So, you know, I'm not alarmed by the fact that they are hosting their own conference. And in some ways, you know, of course, they have every right to do that in the same way that we could have invitation-only school choice conferences or invitation-only unschooling conferences. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the larger point, though, is instead of, uh, instead of necessarily protesting their opportunity or their uh, their you know right to gather and, and have an invitation only conference, I think the bigger role for those of us who advocate for homeschooling and education innovation more broadly is to just be on the watch for calls for increased policy or regulation at the local, state, and federal levels um, that could really challenge our our rights to educate our children how we see fit. Yeah, oh, that's great. And, and what is that? It's Harvard Law, but who put it on exactly? I they, mean, they're co-sponsoring it with a lot of other 
organizations okay. and they're listed, but Harvard Law School is the, the main one that's, you know, allowing them to come onto their campus and, yeah. and have this event. And there aren't any, I didn't see Carrie McDonald on the list of speakers. I didn't see anyone. Yeah, why are you on there? Carrie? Why are you speaking <laughs> at the conference? <laughs> well, as I said, you know, they can invite whoever they want and we can have our own parallel conference. I know Corey and I are planning on uh, talking about, you know, uh, at Freedom Fest uh, coming up, hopefully in July, um, you know, a response and why, you know, in fact, we should be expanding homeschooling rights and expanding opportunities for alternatives to school. Uh, so, you know, I think there's just lots of room for discussion and debate. We just have to watch out for any kinds of policies or regulations that could come down as a result of anything like this. Yeah, for sure. Good. Well, we are, we're right there. Um, two minutes to the hour. So thanks very much, Carrie. Any parting thoughts, comments that you want to share with any, with any of our viewers? Um, yeah, I think just the final message is, again, thinking about this is a historic moment for all of us. We are living through history with our children. Um, it's, it is a stressful and uncertain time for a lot of families. And I think the more that we can take the pressure off ourselves to feel like we need to be replicating school at home or making sure that our kids are following some kind of set curriculum or keeping up, worry they're going to fall behind and have this supposed coronavirus learning loss, I think let a lot of that go and just enjoy time with your family, enjoy time with your children um, and see the amount of learning that can come from that. Great. It's a great uh, way to leave leave off and end the broadcast. So thanks very much, Carrie, for coming on. We appreciate your time this morning and and even working through the explosion of a transformer in your neighborhood. I have to go. I have to go now. Check on on uh, the excitement of these exploding transformers with my family. But but uh, sorry about that. And and uh, appreciate your again your invitation. It's been great being with you. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Corey, for setting it up. We appreciate yeah, everything. thanks. Thanks for you know fielding the questions, Matthew, and thanks for uh, being the interpreter during <laughs> during this uh, period of non communication between myself and Carrie McDonald. But yep, I'm happy yeah. to play the man to make sure everyone can hear each other. So good. Well, All thank right. you, everyone. Have a good Take one. Care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org, on Twitter at EF underscore Institute, and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.